The scripture reading for this evening comes from Colossians 1, 1 1-8. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a real privilege to be with you tonight and to worship. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe Dennessy, and I'm the RUF campus pastor at Penn State. Before that, I spent six years at UAB, and Melissa, my wife, and I, we joined Red Mountain back in 2005, and so Red Mountain is a very special place in our hearts. I look around the room, and I see a lot of people that mean a lot to me, and I look at people who have encouraged us and loved us, and I think that, wow, there are a lot of people in this room that mean a lot to me, Um, and we we love being here, and I I say that because I I think I've learned so much about the gospel, I think I've learned about who I am uh, as a person, as a child of our Lord, through the ministry of Red Mountain, Um, and not just, you know, the elders, of course the elders, but through you, and I take uh, what I've learned about the gospel and about ministry to Pennsylvania. And in a real way, there's an organic connection between what's happening here and what's happening in Pennsylvania. And more than organic, there's a financial connection as well uh, because Red Mountain supports us. And so I want to say thank you for the ways that you are still committed to us and to a ministry that is very much... Uh, like-minded to what's happening here at Red Mountain. So, thank you. Uh, some of you have asked, like, what, what are you guys doing here? We're actually on our way down to Summer Conference. If you don't know what that is, it's, it's sort of RUFs, our denominations, you know, campus, like, end-of-the-year retreat down at Panama City Beach. And so there's going to be, you know, a thousand kids down there. And I'm actually working out the final logistics of getting 42 of our students from Pennsylvania down to uh, Panama City Beach. And so that's what we're doing here. And it's a thrill to actually get to stop and and be here. Uh, Ministry at Penn State is going well. Um, We inherited a good group. And God is blessing our work. And thank you for the ways that you're part of that. Uh, But I'm here tonight to preach, and so let me pray and ask that God would speak to us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the ways that you have pursued us relentlessly in Jesus. And we ask now that you would show us Jesus, that you would help us to see him to be more lovely and more believable, that you would do this by your spirit. We ask that we would hear from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you podcast. Um, I'm not a 
diehard podcaster, but road trips, things like that. I'm always looking for things to listen to. And I recently came across a podcast by uh, NPR. It's called Invisibilia. And I heard about this story, Martin Pistorius, which I think is sort of gaining recognition. It may not be as new, uh, but Martin Pistorius grew up in South Africa as a normal kid, uh, had a sort of you know, gift with electronics. Uh, and one day he comes home from school, he's 12, he says, Mom, I think I'm sick, I think I have the flu. And she says, well, son, go, go lie down. Only he never got better. He lie there, he got sick, and he got sicker and sicker. They said, we need to go to the hospital. They take him to the hospital. And he had some rare, debilitating disease that left him every day worse than the day before. Uh, he got so sick that he began to lose the ability to, to walk on his own, move on his own. Uh, eventually, he lost the ability to make eye contact with others, uh, to communicate in any way whatsoever. And eventually the doctors looked at him and then looked at his parents and said, your son is now a vegetable and he will never communicate with anyone again. There's nothing going on upstairs and you need to take him home and make him comfortable so that he can die in peace. Only he didn't die. In fact, for 12 years, he didn't die. And his father recounts in this podcast what their daily lives look like. He says, I would wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I would get my son dressed and bathe, or bathe, then dressed, would feed him. And then I would take him to a hospital for so I could go and work my shift. And then I would come home, and I'd take him home, right? And I would bathe him. I would get him in bed. I would set my alarm for every two hours so that he would not develop bed sores. Every day, for 12 years, this was his life. But here's the thing, Martin wasn't actually a vegetable. Uh, Initially, he was. For two years, he was. And then he recounts sort of waking up still completely incapable of communicating with anyone. Uh, No way to give any sort of sign or glimpse that anything was going on underneath the surface. And so he still looked like a vegetable. When When his father would drop him off at the hospital, they would sit him in front of a television for eight hours and he would watch Barney all day, every day. And he recounts the the loathing that he developed for Barney the dinosaur. Very aware of what was happening. One night... His mother was helping to put him in bed, and she looked him in the eye, and she said, I just wish that you would die. And he was there, and he heard it. Completely stuck in his thoughts, with no one to know that he had them, and that's all he had. Thoughts like, no one will ever show me tenderness. No one will ever love me. You are doomed. I cannot begin to wrap my mind around the hopelessness that Martin's mother felt to bring her to a place to look at her son and say, I just wish that you would die. A a certain hopelessness that nothing would ever be different, that this is just the way that it is. I'm even more lost trying to imagine the degree of hopelessness that Martin would feel looking at his mother, uttering those words to him, and thinking, 
regularly and meaning more than we have ever met in our entire lives, you are doomed. What about you? As a Christian, do you ever feel like you are stuck? Do you ever feel like the battles that you engage in every day are futile? Do you ever feel like the prospect of change in your life, spiritual, Holy Spirit change in your life, is hopeless? I often sense on campus a skepticism when I sit across the table from somebody for lunch or coffee that there is just a skepticism that change is even possibility. That the way things are are just the way things are always going to be. My character, my flaws, my habits, that nothing about me is going to change. And if you're like me, sometimes when I look in the mirror, I'm confronted with that same skepticism. And I project that same skepticism even on those I love sometimes. Even at home. This is just never going to change. We wonder, don't we? How am I going to love my spouse right now when he's being so difficult? Is it possible for me to be consistent and patient with my children Is it possible for me to trust God with this area of my life, or this area of my life, or this area of my life? Is it possible for me to fight the seeming inability to love those who hurt me, to forgive those who wrong me? Or maybe you've grown to be a little bit more apathetic than that. Change isn't even really worth the effort. And tonight I want us to look at this passage and think on this passage, reflect and hear that real change is possible. I think obviously we believe that on some level. A lot of us make New Year's resolutions. If we don't do that, we often demand, expect change from others. You always do this to me. You always act this way. You should change. On some level, we believe in change. Uh, Martin Pistorius actually has a happy ending. Um, A nurse had a hunch that wouldn't go away, that there was something going on up here finally convinced some doctors to run some tests that they'd already run a few years ago. And turns out, yes, there's something going on there. We can give new attention to him. And he's still in a wheelchair, but he learned how to communicate again. Uh, he, he actually got married. He's been restored to his community and his family His story is known because he wrote a New York Times bestseller about it. And and I realize that I'm comparing apples and oranges here. I really, I realize that. But I find this to be a powerful picture of change in the face of seeming stagnation. This is just the way that it is. One of the main themes in the book of Colossians... The things that that Paul really wants the Colossians, he wants us by extension to get. He wants us to grow in a conviction that God brings change. Holy Spirit wrought change in the lives of his people. And he doesn't just bring it, it's the normative Christian experience. 
It's what Christians can ordinarily expect, that God changes us, begins to renew us from the inside out. And he wants us to grow in the conviction that change is normative because it's, it's God's work. Paul is convinced that change can be the Colossian reality, it can be the RUF reality, it can be the Red Mountain reality, because it's actually been his reality. He knows firsthand what he's talking about. He's seen the change that God can bring in his life, and so he expects to see it in the lives of those that he writes to. Change is what God does. And if you think about it, you see it even in the first verse of this passage. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He says, I'm an apostle by God's will. And and most of us know this story. Paul was not always a Christian, much less an apostle, a persecutor of the church on his way to persecute more Christians when Jesus kicks him off his horse, blinds him, and says, Paul, I'm going to change you. I'm going to change this persecutor, this murderer of God's people, and you're going to be a pastor of God's people. You're going to be an apostle to God's people. I'm going to change this this person that hates Christians, and you are going to start to live for Christians. And most of what will become known as the New Testament is going to come from your pen by my inspiration. I'm going to change you, Paul. And he has been changed and is being changed when he writes this letter to the Colossians. Paul writes the Colossians to tell them of the change that God is still working in their lives because he knows of it personally. God willed Paul to change. God willed him to be an apostle. And Paul wants the Colossians, he wants us to see that God gets what he wills. And he wills change in the lives of his people. Paul wants the Colossians to know that God gets what he wills. He wants that to breed confidence in us. Because it's God's work. God is pursuing this in us. Confidence comes when we believe that God wills for us to be changed more and more from the inside out. If you're visiting this evening and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you're not sure what you make of the Bible or Jesus, we're glad that you're here. And I want you to notice something that Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, you Christians are so much better than those non-Christians. Even though it's entirely possible that you've crossed paths with Christians that think this way. I'm guilty. He doesn't say, you Christians have done some wonderful things. And because of these wonderful things, God is really pleased with you. He doesn't say that. Uh, Paul wants us to see that anything praiseworthy in the lives of the Colossians, anything praiseworthy in the lives of these Christians, it has more to do with God than it does with them. We see this in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Why does Paul thank God 
That he looks, when Paul looks on these Colossians, he says their lives are marked by faith and by love and by hope. He doesn't say, great job, guys. He says, I thank God. And he thanks God because none of these things comes naturally to the Colossians. None of these things comes naturally to us. This faith, this love, this hope. He doesn't praise the Colossians. He praises God. The most important marks in our lives have more to do with God's work in our life than it has to do with us. Why is Paul so confident that God can bring change in the lives of others? It's because he knows it's God's work. Look at you. Look at this life. Look at where you were. Thank God. Thank God. Again, if you're not sure of Jesus, if you're not sure of Christianity, if you're not even sure why you're here tonight, but you're curious about this whole Christianity thing, there's a really crucial point to to hear tonight. You see, what makes Christianity unique from every other religion and every other worldview, every other religion, every other worldview, is not the idea that change is important. We all know that change is important. We all feel the gap between who we want to be, who we should be, and who we are. That doesn't make, that doesn't make Christianity unique. What makes Christianity unique is not this idea that change is important. What makes it unique is where change comes from. The Bible teaches us that the change that we're really longing for, that's sort of embedded in our spiritual DNA... The kind of change that we long for that really honors the God that made us, it comes when we learn to depend upon Him. And when we stop depending upon ourselves. A shorter way of saying this is that rather than merely mustering up the strength to change ourselves, Christians learn how to depend on Jesus. This is actually what Paul means when he says, I thank God for your faith. It's God's work. Faith is dependence upon God. And not in a generic God either. The God that we can know through His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, you Colossians have trusted. You believe. You have faith in Jesus. Christians understand that our need for change, our need to fix this sort of brokenness, has to come from outside ourselves. It has to come from Jesus Christ. We understand that we're broken, or the way the Bible says it, we understand that we're sinful. And we also understand that we cannot affect the change that we need in our lives because we cannot effectively deal with the sin that is in our lives. But Jesus can. Jesus came into this world that he made and lived our life perfectly. Never in need of change, this Jesus. Never sinning, this Jesus. He never resented those who we would say deserved his resentment. He never got unjustly angry. He never let bitterness stew in his heart like we have. 
And instead of being rewarded for this perfect life, he goes to a cross so that he can take away the sins of the world. Placed on him, this perfect, sinless Jesus. And he's raised to new life. And as Christians, we hang our spiritual hats, our lives, on this reality. That this Jesus really lived this life. And he really died this death. He was really raised again to new life. And that means that change is possible in our lives. But you might ask, as I have on many cynical moments, if Jesus lived this perfect life for me, if Jesus died this death to take away the guilt of my sin, and, and there's therefore now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ. And if I can receive this good news by faith alone, right? and I can, and you can, do I really have to care about change in my life? You see, Paul is challenging the idea that faith in this Jesus can lead to apathy with regard to change in our lives. You see, dependence upon this Jesus means that we have to care about it. We have to care about what God cares about. We have to care about what Christ purchases for us on the cross. And what did he purchase for us? Our salvation. And that includes our change. That we would be made more and more into the image of this Jesus that lived a perfect life for us. If this story is true, and it is. We have to care about what God cares about. Because His love begins to change us. If we place our faith in Christ, and you have to understand this, then God has absolutely no intention of leaving us the same way that He found us. No intention. When we receive this great salvation, we even receive a new family. We get to call the the creator of heaven and earth, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we get to call him the same thing, father. And not only that, we get to call everyone who has the same faith in this God, family. Do you see the connection? Paul says, we thank God for your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. In Paul's mind, a saint is not some sort of spiritual elite, but anyone who has faith in Christ. Anyone. You have faith in Christ, you have the same father that I have. We're in this together. We have a new family. And Paul is saying it's impossible, impossible to love Jesus and not love others who love Jesus. In RUF... We want to cultivate and encourage faith in Jesus. A deeper understanding of what it means to be loved apart from what we deserve. That we receive unmerited grace and favor because God is good and gracious. We want to see our students grow in an understanding of the need for the gospel. But we also want to see them grow in their need for Christian community, their their love and need for the local church, because in Paul's mind, the two go hand in hand. 
Love for Jesus and love for the saints. Two sides of the same coin. Which means conversion to Christ must be questioned when there is disdain for those who belong to him. If they're precious to Jesus, they become precious to us. In Christ, God intends to fill us with love, not just for Jesus, but for those who belong to Jesus. Paul spells this out more in chapter 3. He uses words like kindness, gentleness, compassion, forgiveness, to sort of fill out this idea, this picture of love. Do you see the relational dynamic? Of course God intends to change us as individuals, but he intends to change us as a community as well. Fellow saints who belong to the same Jesus that we love. But Paul is thankful for the Colossians. He's thankful for their faith in Jesus. He's thankful for their love for the saints. But did you notice the relationship between faith and love to hope in this passage? He says, you have faith in Christ Jesus, and you have love for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Here's what he's saying. As important as God-given changes in your life, and it's important, it's always going to be imperfect. This side of heaven, it will always be imperfect. Your faith in Christ will always be mixed with sin. And as a Christian, we should experience real change in our lives. We will go through seasons of growth, but we will also experience seasons that feel like regression. We will have mountaintop experiences and we will go through valleys. Our faith will be imperfect. Always in this life, until Jesus comes. Because this world is still broken. And this world is imperfect. And we are broken, and we are imperfect. Which of course means that our love for the saints will be imperfect as well. The way we experience Christian community in this life will be imperfect. But we must press on. How do we do this? We have to know the hope that we have in Jesus. The resurrected Jesus, who died for sinners and bore our sin on a cross. The one who ascended into heaven, ascended to prepare a place for us. Where we will be with him forever and ever and ever. This is true. This is absolutely true. That when we die, those of us who would say, we love this Jesus, and He loves me, He's going to take us to Himself. That when we meet our Maker on that day of judgment, it will not mean the wrath that we deserve. It will mean eternal life with our Maker and with our fellow saints. That's our hope. And Paul says that hope spurs us on to faith and love now. The hope that we have forever is connected with the faith and the love that we experience now. 
You see, the good work that God is doing in our midst is a foretaste of something better yet to come. When we go through seasons and we grow in dependence upon our maker, we grow in dependence upon Christ, that's but a foretaste of what eternity is going to be where we depend on him perfectly. And when we experience seasons of glorious community where we're encouraged and challenged, wherever community is is best experienced, it's but a foretaste of the community that we will experience with each other forever. It's awesome. Back to our original question. Do you ever feel stuck spiritually? Christian, you need to know that this hope of heaven is yours. This hope belongs to you now. Even though it will be fully experienced later. And Paul says, if heaven is yours, then so is change. If heaven is yours, then change is yours now. Paul says in verses 5 and 6, We know this from the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. You hear that change language? The word of truth that you heard that began to mark your life with faith and love and hope is growing. And it's still changing you and those in your midst. This is truth. God intends for there to be change in our lives. He absolutely does. And it's His work. And one of the ways that He works this change into our lives is when we open the Bible and read it, and hear it, and let it challenge us, and comfort us in faith. God's Word is living and active. It's powerful to effect change that we cannot effect in our own lives. It's why it's so important to what we do in any Christian church on any Lord's Day. We open the Bible and we ask God, speak to us. Help us to believe, God, that you are using this to change us even as, right now, change us in ways that may be imperceptible to us, but Lord, you see it because it's your work. Let that fill you with a confidence and a trust that God is at work in you. Do you want what God wants for you? Do you want to want what God wants for you? We can ask Him and pray, Lord, give me desires for my own life. Give me the same desires for my life that you have for my life. Because God has desires for our life. To make us more like His Son Jesus. Desire so strong that He sends His Son Jesus to die for us, to be raised for us, so that we can become like Him. Believe this. What happens when we gather and we open God's Word and we pray and we commune? It's supernatural. 
It's God's work. And it's how He ordinarily works to change us. So lean into it. And trust this Jesus. Because God is at work in His church by His word to grow us in faith and love and hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for loving us and your son Jesus. We ask now that you would have your way in our midst by your spirit, that you would do the work that you've promised you intend to do. Would you give us perseverance and faith in Jesus and love for each other because you have given us a rock-solid hope in heaven forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.